What's the future for government and military cybersecurity? That's the focus of this special episode of Bloomberg Government's Suspending the Rules. I'm Adam Taylor, joined by my fellow legislative analyst, Danielle Parnas, and BGov Homeland Security reporter, Michaela Ross. Hi. Hi. On Wednesday, January 30th, Bloomberg government hosted its 2019 Hill Watch event at our K Street office. Two other portions of the event are available now as special episodes of this podcast. This episode will feature Michaela's interview with Senator Mike Rounds, who chairs the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Cybersecurity. Michaela, what's his top priority for the coming year? Senator Mike Rounds set a lot of priorities for the coming year. He's especially interested in what's going to happen with this new Trump administration policy that allows these cybersecurity experts and, and those in the military to defend forward is, is what it's being called. So go on the offensive more easily when there's cyber vulnerabilities. Your interview with Senator Rounds ranged pretty far, touched on the recent shutdown as well. While some members of Congress have proposed enacting a law to essentially create automatic continuing resolutions to ensure the government doesn't close operations again in the future, the senator actually referenced a different idea. Yeah, the senator had a couple of really interesting ideas that were thrown around yesterday. One of them was, you know, what would happen if there was just a full government shutdown with zero services. And how could that really motivate lawmakers? Because it would just impact everyday Americans on such a greater level than what we saw with this last partial shutdown. So that was one idea. But I also, one of the first questions that I asked him out of the gate was about an appetite for another shutdown. He said there is zero appetite in the Senate for another shutdown, of course, referencing Senate Republicans specifically. But his other idea was very interesting. He said in South Dakota, when there is not a budget agreement, then property tax assessments automatically go up. And even though that isn't a feasible policy on a federal level that really creates uh, some political backlash specific to those lawmakers there that adds to the pressure for them to to pass that budget, to get that budget agreement settled. So that was another one of his ideas. Well, let's go to the interview. Thank you so much for coming here today, Senator. It's a pleasure to have you. Appreciate um, the opportunity. Absolutely. So we aren't talking about what happened in the State of the Union. And one of the reasons that we're not talking about that is because we just had this shutdown. So interested from your personal view, is there an appetite for another shutdown? What do you think needs to be done in order to prevent another lapse in funding in the next few weeks? There is absolutely no appetite for another shutdown. Uh, and I'm talking Republican and Democrat alike. Uh, we don't want one. We didn't like the last one. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell says it best, uh, the second kick of the mule. You know, if you haven't learned from the first one, the second one doesn't do you much good. Uh, most of us understood to begin with that uh, a shutdown was a bad thing, uh, and, and we still feel that way. We don't want to see another one. Uh, I know that right now the committee, the, 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 uh, the joint committee, the uh, uh, committee between House members and Senate members is meeting, um, and behind the scenes they're trying to work out what it's going to take to find that common ground to where Republicans and Democrats can both come away with at least something of a victory, and even more importantly, be able to say that they didn't lose something in, in the midst of it. Uh, we also recognize the president's got a lot to say on it. He truly does believe that he needs to do something in terms of border security. He believes that the term, the wall, is really important because people see strength in that. And if there is a way to allow for that border security, which Democrats also want, if there's a way to allow so that we can continue with the, uh, with the uh, uh, structures necessary on the southern border, 
but also to make sure that it is a solid border security system, then they've, they've worked their way through this weave. And you know, it's not like we don't have structures there right now. We've got on, on 1,954 miles of border down there, international border. There's right now, there's 654 miles where you've actually got either a pedestrian barrier or a vehicle barrier already in place. What the president wanted to do was to add about 234 more miles of either structural barriers against vehicles or against pedestrians. And he would have been the fifth president to have done that. So it's not an unreasonable request on his report, but it has become a political discussion between the two parties and thus more difficult. But border security has really taken up a lot of the oxygen in the room. And I know that has been a focus of yours as well. I'm wondering, though, as we shift into these next two years, the White House's legislative agenda seems pretty open. They haven't been advertising much else. What do you think? Is this an opportunity for your chamber and Republicans in your chamber to move some legislative priorities? And what would those be? Well, look, remember, this next shutdown possibility occurs on February 15th, right? which means between now and February 15th, we've got to resolve this particular issue. It was a year ago that we had proposed a mega deal that would have provided $25 billion in funding for border security, and it would have addressed the issue of the DACA kids as well, and kind of a mega deal. We got 54 votes on the floor of the Senate for our proposal. We ended up six short. Now. Going from there to where we are today, we've still got to, number one, get past that. Second of all, we've got some issues out there, including a, a challenge with regard to our debt limit. But then we've also got something else. Now you've got Republicans and Democrats sitting, looking at one another, saying, how are we going to get past the budget for the next two years? What are we going to do? Because remember, we've still got challenges with limitations on what we can spend based on existing law that comes back into effect where we might very well have restrictions on what we can spend in our non or in our defense and our non-defense discretionary side of the budget. We're going to have to address those, which means the top line for the next two years has got to be established. If we can get a top line established for the next two years in terms of what we agree to spend, Republicans and Democrats alike, and start laying that out, then maybe we can start moving forward with which is, which is going to be a, a critical test for Congress, which is, What's the budget going to look like? What are we actually going to be able to spend with regard to defense and the non-defense discretionary? The unfortunate part of this whole thing is that we're not addressing the critical issues of mandatory spending, which is literally $3 trillion out of a $4.3 trillion budget. And, and that's the piece in this thing that is the monster in the room that nobody seems ready to, 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 to tackle. And, and it's got to be discussed. That's the costs associated with and the management of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest on the federal debt. We don't vote on it. It's automatic. It's on autopilot. And this is a challenge for us because we don't have the mechanisms in place today to where somebody has a responsibility not to cut, but to manage those critical programs. Until such time as we start to actually manage them and find efficiencies and better ways of delivering those services, this isn't going to go down. Those expenditures are going to continue to rise. Do you think with that kind of budget pressure, though, that something like the bipartisan um, push for an anti-shutdown piece of legislation, something that would prevent another shutdown, do you see that coming through more so in these last few weeks? Possibility. I think uh, part of it is, is that Congress is not... Um, accountable to anybody. 
except the voter every couple of years. But that voter gets really mad at Congress, but not necessarily at their individual members, because in a lot of cases, those individual members are, are following the will of the folks in that particular legislative district or that, that state. And so those principles that we stand on are in, really, in many ways an example of the principles that are expressed by the people that have elected them in the first place. So, you know, look, it, it, it sounds really good to say we're going to stop this thing because we've got a plan to never let a shutdown go on again. But let me just run this by you. What if, if we did have a shutdown, it was a full shutdown? What if it wasn't a partial shutdown where emergency services were still provided and where ongoing things uh, uh, within the government itself still operated but at a reduced level? What happens if it actually shut it down? You'd never have a shutdown. You just, you'd never let that happen because people wouldn't get reelected. In South Dakota, we've had a provision within our law for years that basically said, if you don't balance your budget, if there's a shortfall, there is a requirement that it be fixed with a statewide property tax assessment. You know how many times that's happened? Never. Because there isn't a single politician in South Dakota that ever wanted to say, I'm responsible for a property tax assessment that raised your property taxes. So are we saying never so happened. you want more taxes? What? Are we saying that you want more taxes? No, what we're saying is, is people don't want more taxes. Therefore, they won't let you not balance your budget. And at Washington, here in Washington, we don't have that provision. So it's easier to give someone something and to say, we need to spend this money but there isn't anybody who is responsible for saying there is a cost involved and somebody has to pay the bill. And this isn't new to anybody in this room. This is what you've seen happen year after year. But so far, when you're talking about your legislative priorities, or even just what's on your mind right now, we're talking about the potential of imposing a new tax. I'm going to give you a hard time for that. Um, mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare. Do you expect any of this to come up in the State of the Union? Let's fast forward a couple days to next Tuesday. What are you expecting? Do you expect some of these same priorities to come up? What are you hoping that President Trump is going to say? I think, number one, the president recognizes that politically he has to work at expressing to people the serious concern that he sees at the southern border. So I would expect that to be a significant part. I think he's going to talk about the fact that right now we're not talking about nuking North Korea, and North Korea is not talking about nuking us we're talking about there is is actually finding a way forward, which is not the way it was when he came in. I think he's going to talk about Iran. I think he's going to talk about the fact that the deal that he said was a bad deal, he believes really was a bad deal, and the fact that we're moving in the right direction with Iran and that, and that, and that that's a positive thing. Um, I think he's going to talk about the fact that with the tax bill that came through, you're actually seeing increases in revenue that you that some people didn't expect to see. And I think he's going to talk about an economy that's really been averaging real close to about 3% growth, where the pundits, the experts, said you're never going to get over 2% growth. I think he's going to talk about that and the fact that those are positive messages that are out there that are getting lost in the discussions that we're having about the shutdown itself. And I think he wants to refocus some of that. Sure. That might leave him a little vulnerable if uh, the, the estimates for GDP do go down, though, because of the shutdown. That's right. And, and, and look, the... the, the we all recognize that shutdowns are never good. And shutdowns do hurt the economy because it's not just a matter of a federal government employee who doesn't get paid. It's a service that they're providing that stops somebody else from doing their job. Uh, it, it means that you may have aircraft that are not being produced or approved. It means 
as some people have heard, uh, a, a, a beer that's not being approved by, by uh, the different organizations who have to approve craft beers and so forth. It's these kinds of things that go on. It's not being able to get someplace on time because of airline delays. Those things all impact us, and we see it and we get frustrated with it, but it really does impact our economy. There's another piece out there that's impacting our economy as well, and that is trade. Now, the president has made it very clear that we've got to do some stuff, and it's hard to do with regard to China. You can argue whether we should have done NAFTA over, and you can argue whether or not we should have done TPP. I think we should have done TPP. I don't think we should have taken on NAFTA and TPP and our European allies at the same time that we were going to go to battle with China. But that's where we're at today. So let's get this thing with China out in the open. Intellectual properties is critical to us and to most of the, the, the rest of the business community out there that expects that if you have ideas, you're going to be able to retain them and get credit for them. That's foreign to a Chinese culture that has not recognized intellectual properties as something that you own. But over the last 20 years or so, they feel like they've made some progress on it. But we've got a long way to go. So the president is correct when he identifies that intellectual properties are very important to us. The other piece of this is, is China really is stealing us blind when it comes to a lot of our secrets. And, and they're coming in, and they literally are stealing items that belong to businesses to the tune of, and I think the last time I saw it quoted, was $250 billion a year coming out of the United States. Those are serious issues that have got to be handled. But in the meantime, it's taken a toll on our economy as well. My soybean farmers in South Dakota, they saw a drop in soybean prices that they still haven't recovered from. The senator and I am also from the yeah. Midwest. We were talking about soybeans in the back, which, you know, is a very common thing to talk about. In if you're from Midwestern <laughs> state, soybeans is a big part of the discussion, yeah. One of the concerns, though, I, I was listening to the radio, there were some um, political pundits that, that were concerned that um, the president and, and his trade team might actually, in these high-level talks that are going on right now with China, might actually take a concession. If they can sell more uh, agriculture products like soybeans, they'll kind of back off on the IP. Do you see that happening? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what their strategy is in IP, because it, that is huge, and, and, and that is the big dog in the room. But soybeans, let me just give you an example. Soybeans, we produce a huge amount of soybeans in the United States today. 25% of our entire soybean market is sold to China. 60% of what is exported goes to China. So when you take that kind of a hit out of soybeans, that's a major piece. Now, what are we talking about soybeans? Soybeans is one of the crops that's rotated with corn. Most of your farmers are corn and soybeans, and they rotate them back and forth to help promote soil health. It's a, it's a, it's a rotation program. And so for them, this is one of the two major crops that they expect to be able to produce every single year. And um, so when you take that and you move that out and, and, and you take away that export, and that's cash coming back into the United States to help, help offset a balance of trade, that really does have impact on, on the rest of our economy as well. Can we switch gears real quick as we, uh, we're going to be opening it up to questions in a couple yeah. minutes, so please start formulating your questions now. Um, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That has been an area that Speaker Pelosi and President Trump have said they can find some agreement on, or at least hoping to find some agreement on. Where do you see that agreement coming in the next few months or years? How, how soon? Uh, I can't tell you how soon, but I can tell you there are plenty of opportunities out there for improvements in infrastructure within the United States, whether you're talking about our road systems, whether you're talking about our telecommunications systems, uh, the newest broadband 
water systems. Think of a single major community out there that doesn't need to take a second look at whether or not their water systems are up to speed and the amount of improvements that we could make there that would benefit generations of Americans to come. Those are all good, positive opportunities for us. And it's not so much what it does to put people to work in terms of that primary person coming back in and constructing it. It's what it does to the economy over the next generation that you've also got to add into this. So, I, look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with discussing uh, the infrastructure packages that are out there. And I do think it's one area in which Republicans and Democrats are going to find some common ground. You're going to find some in which you're going to have the... The, uh, the public-private partnerships that are going to be positive, particularly in urban areas where you generate a lot of revenue. You're going to find some, some rural areas in which we're still trying to bring up to speed our telecommunications and our, and our, 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 um, our uh, uh, internet communications. But um, uh, rural water systems in the, in, in the Midwest are still trying to be put in place. Some folks just take it for granted. We don't. We're still looking for those water systems. Uh, but those improvements can all add to our economy long term. And uh, so, I, but that's the way I'm going to look at infrastructure. What's it going to do to improve our economy and our ability to transport goods and services? That's the critical part. And it's something that government has an obligation to be involved with. Last question then for me. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about cyber. Um, yesterday, there was, we had a, a hearing um, coming from your side, and then we also had a report come out on Monday now, I believe, um, showing that the Pentagon cyber defenses were being outpaced. I was wondering what your reaction to that report was and what can Congress do to help boost that, to do more oversight, what's needed there? I, I serve as the, the, the chairman of the subcommittee on, on cybersecurity for the armed services, and we've been doing a lot of behind-the-scenes classified report where we're trying to bring ourselves up to speed on what the needs are. Let me try to break it down for you. You, you. you have, number one, the defense of the Department of Defense's infrastructure, the telecommunications, their, their computers and so forth, their communications out to the different Defense Department places as well around the world. Then you've also got the whole of government where the Department of Defense communicates with the rest of government. And then you've got the whole of the country, which is how do you protect the infrastructure on, uh, for communications and so forth and our computer systems throughout the rest of the country? What we're finding time and again is, is that we put in systems in place where we didn't really worry about security to begin with. We worried about efficiencies and so forth, and we did them as inexpensively as possible. Now what we're finding is, is that the bad guys that are out there, and we have near-peer competitors who are very good at this, they're getting into our systems, and they're getting into our systems in order to, to steal information that we find on systems, not just within the Department of Defense, but within contractors that provide them services, subcontractors, and the sub-subcontractors, all of whom they're trying to get into and find out data that would help our near-peer competitors in their fight long-term with us. They want information that they may not be able to get themselves, but that we have systems um, on new ideas and so forth, our plans for how we're going to defend our country. Uh, so you have to, and, and what we look at is, is what are our plans right now for defending it? What's the basis for defending that infrastructure itself? And then second of all, how can we make it more expensive for the bad guys to get in? How are they getting? Well, they're getting in because of bad hygiene, they call it, you know, basically uh, computer hygiene where passwords are easy to get into. Um, where phishing systems, emails. phishing emails that somebody opens up and they get into a classified system or they find a way to get into a classified system. 
And we've got to make that more expensive. The second piece of it is there has to be retribution for those countries out there to where we make it very expensive to them and that if they're going to do this to us, they're fair game as well. And that's the offensive side of things. So we're learning not just about what we have to do to have stronger defense, but also how we create a, a, a public policy that allows for a very strong offense when needed as well with regard to cyber attacks. Does that make sense? It makes sense. But you know what, if it doesn't, I'm sure we'll get a question about it. <laughs> um, who has a question that we could ask the senator? Um, we have a hand over here. To piggyback on the cyber discussion, Chairman Crapo has mentioned data and privacy as areas of particular interest for the Senate Banking Committee. Do you anticipate we'll see some activity on that front this session? I, I didn't catch the entire question there. Oh, I'm sorry. So just to piggyback on the cyber discussion, Chairman Crapo yesterday released the committee's agenda. Data and privacy were noted on there as areas of interest. Do you anticipate we'll see some activity on that front this session? Entirely possible. Look, at, and, and here's the reason why. It's not just the Department of Defense that needs to have good hygiene and that has to have a process in place to protect its data. Because from there you go into the whole of government, but from there you go into the whole of country. And when you start talking about, that's the part that most people really care about. It's what about your bank account? What about your personal information? What about the stuff that are your medical records and so forth? All of that is outside of what we normally consider to be government stuff, and it's being held in private hands. How do you protect it, number one, and what are the expectations for the industry norms? And what do you do if somebody does get in? What, what type of retribution is there for getting in? So it starts out, though, with having a, a healthy, robust defensive system in place, and that means following industry standards, whether you're in financial institutions or telecommunications processes, uh, or even your energy companies to where you have to have standards that everybody's going to meet up to. And if you're not doing it, there needs to be penalties in place to, to push you to get to that point. Not only that, it also means then that you've got to have a process in place to be able to share openly with other organizations that are receiving those things to be able to get ahead of a successful attack someplace. So you have to not only be able to say, we're going to have a screen up there that says, the following conditions must be met by everybody in order to strengthen our defenses. But then what happens, and this, this will occur, the bad guys will find a way in. But then what does the company do that does have somebody get in? Do they suddenly say, we better not talk about this? Or do they say, we have an obligation to immediately report this to the appropriate authorities so that somebody can find a patch so that it doesn't happen to everybody else? And those reporting guidelines and so forth are critical when it comes to private industry as well. You start out with the ideas that private industry comes up with so that they can actually implement it, but then at some stage of the game, the standardization is critical. Does that kind of go to the, to the question? Okay, you bet. We do have a question over here. Great. Hi, my name is Bill Alcon. It's nice to see some Midwest bodies around here. Um, I was asking, so what policy do we need to look at where a lot of times we see now everyone has this idea of a zero-sum game and if they don't get exactly what they want, it's kind of a loss. So what policy do we need to mo move more towards to where it's not one of those cornerstone ones? Are you, are you thinking in terms of where we have uh, constant stoppages within Congress? Is that yeah. kind of what you mean? Yes. Yeah, look, here's the deal. It's gotten to the point where we put a huge amount of, of credibility on individuals who will stand strong on their principles, right? And they're not gonna give an inch. And by golly, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna tell people, I stood my principles, that's what you sent me here to do, right? Admirable. 
But let's go back to what is probably some of the best examples of where that has worked and where you have to think twice about it. I'm going to go right back down to our founding fathers. Our founding fathers, there isn't anybody in this room that doesn't think that our founding fathers didn't have principle. These are the men that, and in some cases women, who stood up and said, we want to create our own country, and we're going to go after one of the greatest powers in the world, and we're going to tell them that we're going to be independent. And they put their lives on the line. These were principled individuals. When they got together and they were going to create this country, those principles did not go away. They brought them with them. But now they had to look at big states, and they had to look at little states, and they had to look at northern states and southern states, differing points of view. And these challenged their principles of what they wanted this country to look like. And for a couple of years, they couldn't come up with a solution about how to band together appropriately and how to create a system in which they could trust this new centralized government. But they kept their principles, but as, as Alexander Hamilton suggested, but in order to create this union, a more perfect union, they actually indulged one another's thoughts and respected them. They created, they created a country based on compromise. They created a house and they created a Senate. It was probably one of the greatest compromises and we wouldn't have the country we have today if it wouldn't have been for that compromise where the big states allowed the little states two members to the Senate. Little states allowed the big states the House with, with uh, population-based representation. That was not people standing only on the principle of defending their own state at that time. It was a matter of them looking towards the greater good for their country. That can still exist today in this country, but the American public have got to recognize that you've got to find, as, as, as we would say, stand with your principles, but also respect the principles of other people as well. Find that peace in the middle where you both can win a little, but you both give a little, and you indulge one another with respect. I think that's what it's going to come down to, is, is the American people have got to start demanding once again. as I told a, a group, and I'll get real quick to this. I spoke to a group, and one of the gentlemen afterwards, and I shared with him that same thought process, and he says, I agree with you. He says, build that wall. There's got to be some kind of a compromise that'll let you do that. Now think about that. Build that wall, but there's got to be some kind of a compromise that will let you do that. They understand the need, they want to support, but there's got to be some kind of a compromise. And I think that's the piece that we have to share with people is, is we want to get to that, we want to be able to accomplish all of this, it's going to take good people coming together and respecting one another. That was my interview with Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. It was recorded at Bloomberg Government's 2019 Hill Watch event on January 30th. Thanks, Michaela. BGov subscribers can follow all of Michaela's reporting at BGov.com. And listeners, definitely go back in our podcast feed to check out the other special episodes from the event, including a panel discussion featuring the legislative analysts, as well as Jack Fitzpatrick's interview with House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmuth. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Suspending the Rules. We'll have another regular episode for you next week. 